You may be seated. You know, the providence of God is truly a, a wonderful thing. Uh, we, we talk about God's providence, his sovereignty, and it, it at times is kind of an abstract thing for us, but then some other times it really hits home. I think about the fact that we've been working our way through the book of Titus, and we were knocking right along on schedule, and all of a sudden, uh, I get stuck in an airport overnight on a Saturday night. I'm not able to be here. Uh, our schedule's thrown off, and we have to rearrange things. And a couple of weeks later, I stand here in this pulpit, and it's Fourth of July weekend. And the portion of Titus that we are at now is a portion that speaks of what it means to be a Christian citizen. What a perfect topic for Fourth of July weekend. Talking about what it means to be a, a citizen and a Christian at the same time. Now, we look at this passage here and, and we see some wonderful truths. It's Titus 2, verse 15 through 3, verse 2. Let me read these words to you. This is the inspired word of God. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this 4th of July weekend as we gather here on a weekend where those in the United States celebrate freedoms and liberties that come from you. We thank you for those freedoms that you have granted us. and We thank you that we can experience them here. We thank you for the ability to gather in your name on this morning, in this place. And we ask that as we do, that you might speak to us. My prayer is that I would in no way get in the way of your speaking to us, but rather would be a vehicle for you this morning as we look at your word. And I pray that as we do this, we indeed would be transformed, no longer conformed to the world, but transformed that we might be like Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. This is kind of a, a difficult passage to break up, and it, it seems a little odd, perhaps, that we'd have verse 15 of chapter 2 with the first two verses here today as we take a look at it. Uh, what it basically says there, is, and, and I hope you'll see why I include it here as opposed to last week, it's just to declare, exhort, and rebuke with all authority. Uh, basically, Paul is telling Titus that he's supposed to do these things with all authority, not because Titus was really wise or really talented, or he had a really commanding presence. 
No, that's not the kind of authority he's talking about. He's talking about the authority he had in his position as one who was proclaiming the very word of God. You see, his authority came not from just his personal talents and abilities, but from the fact that what he was proclaiming were not his thoughts, but God's thoughts given to him through the word of God. And so he could proclaim them with all authority. And this phrase, this sentence then, serves as kind of a hinge between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Because back in chapter 2, you'll recall, we talked about how it was that the Christians are to live out life in the church. And now in chapter 3, we turn our attention to how Christians are to live out life in the world. And so this, this phrase that Titus is to proclaim with all authority these truths really applies to both what came before and what comes after. And Paul says to him, he says, let no one disregard you. Truth be told, I don't think Paul is talking to Titus here. Certainly, he is talking to him, but he's talking to him knowing that this letter will be read in the church in Crete. And as it is read there, those who are in Crete will hear these words of Paul telling Titus not to let anyone disregard him. I think Paul is speaking more directly to the people of that church. And likewise, he is speaking to us. He's speaking to us today, and he has these truths that are especially appropriate for 4th of July weekend. Now, most, if not all of us, are citizens of the United States. But we need to realize that if we are in Christ, that is not our only or our ultimate citizenship. We read in Philippians 3, verse 20, how we are citizens of heaven. That is where our ultimate citizenship is. And so as pilgrims or sojourners, we live our lives here in, in this country of which we are also citizens. We have kind of a dual citizenship, but at the same time, we are, are somewhat like exiles here. For we have reached a time where, where this is not the Christian nation that many once supposed it was. It is what the historians and the sociologists refer to as a post-Christian nation. And yet, we still rejoice in some of the wonderful things in our history and some of the wonderful things in our present. I recently went to Washington, D.C. with my family over spring break. We had a wonderful time. And we went to the monuments. We went to the, the Capitol building. We went to... Uh, the Library of Congress. We saw all these wonderful historical places, and, and it was truly a, a wonderful thing. It was a celebratory thing for us to be able to rejoice in God's blessing to us, having been born as Americans and living in this country where we are afforded such freedoms and such liberties. It was a wonderful trip, and we rejoiced in it. For though this nation has done so very imperfectly, it is a nation that has, throughout most of its history, largely acknowledged God. And so we see ourselves in this day, living as exiles in a place that is not wholly our own. And I think that the words that 
that we ought to look to, the, the idea that we ought to look to, is, is that of, of the people of God as they lived in the Old Testament. We remember they were carried off into exile as well. And Jeremiah speaks to this as the people of God are carried off into exile in Babylon. This is what God had to say to them in Jeremiah 29, verse 4 and following. He said, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And we could expect perhaps that he would say at this point, rebel against them, for it is a pagan nation. Lift the fist to them. Stand tall against them. Try to escape. Get out. Pray against this evil kingdom. We could have expected him to say that but that is not what he says what he says is this build houses and live in them plant gardens and eat their produce take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where i have sent you into exile And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And so you see, as those who are citizens and at the same time exiles, we are indeed to seek the welfare of the place that we live. We are indeed right to have a a patriotic fervor, not necessarily because this is such a great country. I'm not saying it's not, but I'm just saying that that is not why we necessarily look to do it. We do it as G.K. Chesterton once said, we love our country not because it is great, but that through our loving it, it might become greater. You see, we want to have an attitude and a mindset and an activity toward our country that seeks to improve it, that makes it a better place, that makes it a place where God is more honored and where life in Christ Jesus is magnified. And so we have certain responsibilities as such. The Christian citizen has certain responsibilities. First, to the governing authorities. Secondly, to the neighbors around us. And third, to the God who is over all. First, to the governing authorities. Paul writes, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Why? Do we need to do this? Why do we need to be submissive to rulers when so many of those rulers do not follow God, when they are not godly in any way, when their every decision seems to be against God? Why should we submit to such rulers? Why should we not rise up against them all? Well, it's because of what Paul says in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Furthermore, as Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. You see, whether we like Barack Obama or whether or not we liked George W. Bush or what we feel about any president that came before them, The fact remains that they sat in the Oval Office because God placed them there. 
God placed them there for his purposes. Now, that doesn't mean that God necessarily likes their politics, but rather for his purposes, they were placed there. And that's true for every politician, governors and senators and congressmen, on down to school board members. Every person who is in any position is there because God has placed them there. He did not fall asleep at the wheel on it. They didn't sneak in when he wasn't paying attention. They are there because he is sovereign over all and he is working out his purposes. Again, it, it might not be that they are the person who best represents him and his ideas, but they are there for his purposes. Just like in the Old Testament, we see Babylon was raised up, as was Assyria, as was Egypt. These, these kingdoms were raised up to actually oppress the people of God. And they were raised up by God for that purpose. Not because they were great, not because they were holy, not because they represented him in any way, but that he had his sovereign and divine purposes that he wanted to work out through them. And so it is today with the political forces that we experience in our country or wherever we happen to be. Now, Regardless of our opinion of certain political figures, we are called to submit to them. And to do this not just begrudgingly with hatred in our hearts, but rather with a mindset of of true support. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we read this. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I want you to stop now for a second and just think of a politician with whom you most vehemently disagree. That shouldn't be hard for most of us, right? We all have somebody that we just think is a complete bozo that has no job being in office. I want you to think about that person for a moment. And now that you're thinking of him, I have this question. When was the last time you prayed for that person? And not just the kind of prayer like, you know, Lord, help them not to mess everything up terribly. Help them not to be such a numbskull. Not those kind of prayers. I'm, I'm really praying. Lord, help them to exercise true wisdom in the office. Support them amidst the multitude of pressures that they are under that I can scarcely fathom. Lord, build them up and strengthen them. Lord, be with their family, children, and spouse who endure all kinds of hardships, seeing their spouse and their father pilloried in the newspapers and on the blogs and on the websites, having to endure the angst and the the struggles of seeing endless criticism lobbied at their beloved family member. When is the last time you prayed that way for a politician? We ought to pray those things and also pray that no matter where they are on their walk of faith and their spiritual journey, that wherever they might be, that they might be drawn closer to Christ Jesus. 
for it is in Christ Jesus alone that they will find true hope and true salvation. The next time you're tempted to criticize, first stop and pray. Now you might think, surely Paul says these things, but he, he doesn't realize, he doesn't realize how, how messed up politicians are in our cult, culture right now. I mean, he doesn't realize the kind of persecution that, that Christians face in America in the 21st century. Right? He doesn't realize that. In fact, if he, he saw it, he probably wouldn't recognize it as persecution at all. Because consider the, the setting into which he's speaking. He, he, he writes these words, and, and the emperor in Rome is Nero at this time. Nero, that same Nero who persecuted the Christians not by, by some of the more trivial means that we might consider persecution today, but he did things like covered them in animal skins and fed them to the wild dogs. He would nail them to the cross. He would use them as human torches to light his garden at night. That's persecution. And it's into a context of that kind of persecution that Paul says, pray for those in power and submit to them. If Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, could say this thing to Christians in the first century, I'm sure he would urge us to do the same. Not just to submit begrudgingly, but to be obedient and respectful. You see, the Cretans that were under Titus in the church in Crete were known as meddlers, troublemakers, uh, rabble, rousers, insurrectionists. That was their reputation. Now, we're not that way, of course, unless a politician happens to disagree with how we think things should be. And it's even worse now with the Internet. My goodness. There are things all over the place, saying all sorts of terrible things. And much of our dialogue is far from respectful. It's mockery and biting sarcasm and crude jokes. The Christian citizen is called to do far better than this, to be far better than this, to rise above this. Does that mean we, we never criticize or we never stand against or never, never refuse to do what the government tells us to? No, that's not the case. Of course, we can look to examples like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, who refused to do what the government told them to do. Or in Acts 5, we see the disciples being told that they must not teach of Jesus anymore. And what's their response in verse 29? Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. You see, if the dictates of a government call you to sin, call you to go actively against God, then we must, we must refuse those mandates. But the general rule, the general rule is that the new life that we have in Christ Jesus should play out in such a way that we respect authorities because God has placed them in their position of authority. And they may not act in a way that is worthy of that respect, but God is worthy of our respect. And he has called us to respect them. Now this new life in Christ doesn't just have an impact on the way we uh, relate to the government. It also has an impact on how we relate to our neighbors around us, doesn't it? 
For Paul writes that we are to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Be ready for every good work, we're told. I saw a picture just the other day that I had seen a long time ago, had forgotten, and then saw again, and it made me laugh. It's a picture of of a tree branch had fallen onto a road, and it's just this little tree branch, and it's right over the shoulder of the road. And you can see this white line that they had painted along the side of the road, and they're painting it along the side of the road, and it gets to the tree branch, and, and it's coming straight down, and it goes around the tree branch, and then straight again. And so you have this line on, on the shoulder of the road, this, this perfectly straight line, except for where that tree branch is, and it goes around. And the caption underneath said, it's not my job. I thought that was just, just hilarious because that's so much the mindset that I have and that many of us have. You see, we, we want to do what is our responsibility, but don't trouble me with something that's not my job. But that's not a Christian mindset. A Christian mindset is one that is ready for every good work. It is looking for opportunities to serve, looking for opportunities to to do things for the glory of God. Think of the Good Samaritan and the example that he sets when when priest and Levite had walked on the other side of the road when they saw one who was in need of assistance and the Good Samaritan comes and at personal cost when no one would have expected him to do it, he helped out the traveler who was wounded and left for dead. We should be that way. We should have hearts that are looking for every good work and further speaking evil of no one. Abusive language is not just wrong with leaders and government authorities. It is wrong for us to use it with anyone. And we should be careful not to slander or to gossip. It's so easy to fall into those things. And yet, they can be so destructive. And if we do partake in them, they say something about our faith. As James says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. As I mentioned before, it's even easier now with all the online opportunities we have. For some reason, people seem to feel that they can say things online to people that they would never in a million years, say face to face. Let us not fall into this trap. Let us never hit enter on the computer. Never hit send on an email. Never, never send out some message to somebody that we would not say face to face. For the words can be just as biting, just as hurting, just as painful, just as destructive. We are to avoid quarreling certainly physical quarreling we're not supposed to get in a fight I, I assume that most of us hardly ever get in a knockdown, drag out boxing match with somebody but we do quarrel don't we verbal sparring it can even be kind of fun I must admit you know, I grew up taking debate in high school and have always loved a good argument and sometimes, I think I mentioned maybe a couple weeks ago how I had had a, an argument with somebody and, and they had come around to my way of thinking right off the bat and I was disappointed. I was disappointed because I didn't get to argue with them. 
I almost wanted to say, no, no, you don't really understand me, because if you understood me, you'd still disagree, and then I could convince you, you know? But, but that's something that's dark in my heart, that wants to quarrel, that wants to dispute, that wants to spar with somebody. And so I need to take that to the Lord. I need to realize that Christ Jesus died for that and all my sins. And I need to be transformed no longer conformed to the world, but transformed that I might be conformed to the likeness of Christ Jesus, my Lord. So far as it depends on me, I must, as we read before, live peaceably with all people. And we're called to be gentle. Some translations say be kind. Aristotle says the Greek word that stands behind this Epiakes denotes not just the ability to consider the letter of the law, but also the mind and the intention of the legislator. You see, he's saying that we must not just follow the law insofar as we can say, well, technically, I did what was said. But rather, we want to get to the heart of the law. We want to do those things that it is intending to do. We want to have a heart that is following the heart of the law. That's what Jesus was saying on the Sermon on the Mount When he says, you heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And he said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, it's not just in deed, but in our hearts, in our thoughts that we need to make sure we are right. It requires a new heart. Because we cannot change our own heart, we must have it changed by God. It comes only through the gospel, through the reality that Christ Jesus, the Son of God, took on human flesh and lived a perfectly sinless life. And he went to the cross and died an atoning death, paying for our sins, that we might have forgiveness. It is the only way that we can have forgiveness. But realizing this great debt has been paid by another, it should not only give us an example of how we ought to live, but it ought to empower us. For his spirit dwells within us and binds us together with him. And the holiness that he has granted us should be lived out through our lives. It's a process, a process we call sanctification, where we are further and further conformed to his likeness, but it is a process that we must be on the path of. And as we are on that path, we are to show perfect courtesy, Paul says. Some versions say true humility, and of course, Christ Jesus, again, is our example here. Because it was Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He did not demand his own rights 
He did not think about himself. And so should our lives be. We, we should think about others first. We should not demand our own rights. But rather should have this neighbor love toward others. Now it's easy to have that toward those you naturally love. You know, your family, perhaps neighbors that you're really close with. That's one thing. But Paul doesn't say that you should show perfect courtesy to the really nice folks that you really like. He says show perfect courtesy toward all people. Not just toward those we want to, but all people. Even enemies. So again, I return to the words of our Savior in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's easy to think that evil people, our enemies, don't deserve this kind of love, this kind of support, these kind of prayers, but Christ Jesus has earned it. And he says that we are to give it. And so we must be good citizens. This is a picture of how we are good citizens toward government, toward neighbor. But one last thing I want to touch on is the thing that makes it all possible. It's our attitude toward God, our responsibilities toward the God who is overall. And that should be one of thanks. Thanksgiving for all the blessings that we have received. We should give thanks for what he's done. We owe thanks to God that we have been so blessed to live in this place And in this time, we have received many, many blessings, material and otherwise. And they are ours simply because of our birthplace. We did nothing to gain them, nothing to earn them, nothing to establish them. We received them simply by being born here. And let us never forget that the rights that we have, those rights that that are enumerated to us in our founding documents as a country are not ours because the government says they are ours. They are ours because we are endowed by our creator with those rights. They come from God. Let us be thankful to God above all for these rights. And we should be thankful that he's placed us in a context that no matter how poor we might be, we are among the most comfortable people who have ever lived. I think of Alexander the Great, a man who, who ruled the known world. It was said of him, when Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, he wept, for there were no more worlds left to conquer. And yet he didn't have air conditioning, or a car, or wireless internet service. You see, Our lives are so much more comfortable because of when we were born and where we were born. And we should thank God for that. It is right to thank God for that. Let us keep things in perspective always. Every blessing in our life is there because God has given them to us. And let us be thankful that God raised up those who would secure the rights that we have. Let us be thankful for uh, soldiers who have served on our behalf, those who have, who have secured our liberties. 
Let us be thankful for founding fathers who had a dream that we could be a godly nation. Now, were they perfect? No. Were they Christian? Not always. But were they used by God? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we should give thanks for that. But the one thing we should give thanks for above all else is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that we can hear that gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed, that we can proclaim it ourselves, that we can hold Bibles in our hands and we can open them up and we can read the word of God. That we have those rights here. Let us give thanks to God. For no matter how blessed we are, no matter what rights we have, we have them only because of him. And so, motivated by the example of Christ and empowered by his spirit, may we as Christian citizens take great care to fulfill our duties to the governing authorities, to the neighbors around us, and most of all, to the God who is over all. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks and praise and worship for you deserve these things. You have blessed us not just in those ways which we have enumerated here today but in countless other ways that we don't even realize. We give thanks for that and pray that you might ever be bringing those to mind that we might be more and more motivated to worship you, more and more motivated to proclaim your glories to the world around us. And we pray that we might maintain the freedoms that we have from your hand. But even if we would lose those freedoms, may we always trust in you. For you are a good and gracious and faithful God. We are your children, citizens of your kingdom in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please rise now and sing with me our concluding hymn, hymn number 400.